Good? Good. It's good by me. Good. Well, thank you for being here. It's a thrill to be here. It's a thrill to be here with you. Thank you. I'll well, say why in a moment or two. Okay. Well, I'll tell you. So by this... the way, you in the back, you see? You? Wait, raise your hand. No, I'm pointing to you. No, you. Yeah, you. With the thumbs up. Okay, if any time it's not good, do this. Okay? Got it. Thanks. Well, we're excited to have you. And I, I will just say, I, I know a lot of people in the room here, and uh, we, we do have a very nice selection of, of leadership in the community, not just in the Jewish community, but outside of our community in, in a variety of fields from tech to water to city politics. So um, people are excited that you're here. Well, I'm excited for a couple of reasons, but if I can start with a couple of thank yous, I, it's not pro forma at all. I do a lot of these things, and, and uh, it's a great Bill Clinton quotation that I, I adore which is that if you see a turtle on top of a fence post, it didn't get there by itself. And the point is that great synagogues, you know, even modest sanctuaries huh, you know, like this are, don't come about by accident. Somebody did it. And even if we don't always stop and pause to think about it, somebody made it happen. So a few thank yous. First, I want to thank a very appropriately named man whose first name is Jordan, Jordan Heimwitz. Thank you so much for thinking about this and putting this together. I, I want to thank American Technion Society, which is, I guess, the fundraising arm of the Technion here in the United States, because uh, as I as woven throughout my entire book, uh, these innovations simply would never have happened had there not been a Technion, and it is an extraordinary organization. I'll do a pitch for it maybe in a few minutes, but not quite now. And then the third and final part is, and, and I, Anita, I hope this, and Igor, I hope this won't upset you that I say this, to be on the stage with you is such a thrill. I mean it, sincerely. A few weeks ago, somebody said to me, macabre, macabre, with some macabre nature, said, if something ever happened to you, who would your successor be in this? I was in New York. I was in San Francisco. I said it would be Aaron Tartakovsky. So, and thank God nothing ever happens to me. I mean, let's keep thank going you. for a while here. Thank you. But, but really, this young man, you, if, I assume you know him because he was on the bar mitzvah stage here, and some of you have been to Shabbat dinner at his mother's and father's home, I assume. How many of you actually know who I'm talking about here? What a great guy. In fact, are you all here because of him or because of me? <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm here because of him too. So, but at this, this young man at, at an incredibly young age, still young enough to marry my youngest daughter, by the way, I, as I pointed out to him. Uh, but Anita, he has to move to New York for that. Okay. Uh, has embraced this, not just the water issue, but the, called the angle of how Israel is the solution to water problems and has used this as an opportunity to speak to groups far and wide about why they should be thinking about water, and when they think about water, why they should be thinking about Israel. It's a context change, it's a paradigm shift, and it's really something that you've done remarkably. So I really, I'm not wearing a hat, even though I should be in shul, but my hat's off to you. Thank you. I know you're just saying that because my mother is seated in the front row here, but I uh, appreciate it nonetheless. But we're here to talk about you yeah. and, and about this book, which if you don't have it, everyone needs to pick up a copy, not just the folks, not just those of us in the water industry, but everyone, because it really is important, and we're going to talk about why tonight. But and if you do, I would be delighted to sign your copy and personalize it to any way you'd like, humorously or seriously. And as Jordan said, from the very beginning, if I can give context to this, I am a Jewish communal servant, not on a salaried basis, but like, like Anita and like I suspect some others of you. Let's show of hands. How many of you volunteer in one way or another with a Jewish organization somewhere? Okay, how many of you don't? No, no, no I don't. And why not? So, so when I wrote this book, I made a decision that I was going to be looking for partners and mentors all over the place. And I figured that if I kept the royalties for this, then people would have a question as to what my motivations are here. So even before, well, I thought the book was going to sell 1,000 copies, so I was a big shot you know, at the time when I said this. But I said, I will not keep a single penny. In fact, I will not get a single penny. We set up a special fund with the publisher, and that every penny of royalties globally, there are now 15 international editions. The book has been, uh, uh, the book, the US copy has been a bestseller all over the country. Every penny of royalties goes to Israeli and other charities. And, and, my, and my reasoning is very, my reasoning is actually very simple, which is I really want this to be a statement of my love for the community, my love for Israel, and that it's, it's a, it's a, it's a all true, it's, rigorously footnoted. It's all true, and, um, it, but it's an important new way of looking at Israel, I think. Anyway, there's books outside, and uh, if they sell out, uh, go to Amazon. Okay. Yeah, thank you. 
Well, one thing I will say is that, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time at water conferences, and um, recently I was at a conference with a woman by the name of Felicia Marcus. She's the single highest water official in the state of California. And on stage, in front of a group of water officials from across the state, she put a picture of Seth's book up on screen, and she called you the Energizer Bunny. <laughs> this is actually talk number 206 that Seth has done on this book, um, which is mind-boggling, to be honest, but uh, I think uh, I want to start, though, because this book has such a, it's had a profound impact on the water industry, not just between U.S. and Israel, but broadly in the water industry. You didn't get your start in water. You were a successful businessman, entrepreneur, producer. So how did your journey into writing this book begin? Uh, it started in a kind of a crazy way. I, I, uh, I've always I, I guess I could liken myself to a cork, you know, in the water that sort of just drifts from place to place. It drove my father completely crazy. He used to use a Yiddish phrase to, to he used to call me a fiddlefacht, said that, you know, I had no zitzflesh, I had no ability to stay on a topic, and I would jump from thing to thing. So, so I, I, I've done this, I have, I've been with the same wife for 37 years and still love her very much, so, so it's, not, it's not always true. But, but what is true is I've had a, a bunch of different careers, and I have... I like the idea that life can be seen as a smorgasbord or a kiddush, and that you can go from table to table and try different things. Well, uh, a handful of years ago, I was attending a lecture on global water, on, glo on national security issues, actually, and the speaker was a senior U.S. government official heading, you may, everyone knows the CIA, but you may not know that there are 17 separate intelligence agencies run by the federal government. And this guy was a senior person in one of those 17, and he gives in his talk the fact that the U.S. government believed with a high degree of certainty with his words that by the year 2025, 60% of the world's landmass and billions of people around the world, there are only 7 billion people in the world, not only, there are 7 billion people in the world, and billions of them would find themselves in a situation of water scarcity, including much of the United States. And I left that meeting with two parallel thoughts. First is I'm an engaged, informed citizen. How come I knew none of this before this? This is before the California drought was in everyone's consciousness. And the second thought I had was, oh my God, if the world is going to be ever drier, and this is going to lead, as this guy said in his, in his presentation, is going to lead to higher food prices, global instability, the failure of important states important to the United States, that it was going to disrupt global order, lead to humanitarian uh, crisis because of refugee flows, if all this is true, I said to myself, Israel, which I knew from my trips to the country, was mostly desert, was a very dry place. I thought to myself, oh my God, Israel's really going to get screwed. And uh, Anita and I, is Sissy here also? I saw her earlier. Sissy, hi. And Sissy, Sissy here, uh, uh, you know, where three of us sit on the APAC National Board, and we worry about and think about how the U.S. government partnering with Israel can, you know, help ameliorate some of Israel's problems. And I left the meeting thinking to myself, I need to find out how bad this is going to be for Israel so that I can bring it to my APEC brethren and sisterin, if this is your word, and, uh, and uh, propose to them that we need to have a crash program to help save Israel. Well, <laughs> you could have knocked me over with a feather. In the ensuing weeks, I start reading about water problems, and every problem that I read about, the solution is found in Israel. And Israel, it's true, has great water problems in terms of nature, but such great vision and wisdom that starting in the 1930s, they built out a system that is now so water abundant that they have something that is common, of course, in the United States, but rare around the world, which is 24-7 available water. They have completely self-sustaining and self-sufficient in fruits and vegetables, which we are city folk mostly, I'm guessing, so we don't know this, but Agriculture eats up by far and away the largest amount of water, 70, 80%, California almost 85% of the fresh water for agriculture. And Israel nonetheless is self-sufficient. They could make a decision to not grow their own fruits and vegetables, to import everything, but they don't. They export billions of dollars a year of produce. And on top of all of that, they provide every single day the majority of the water in the West Bank. They provide even when rockets are flying out of Gaza, as it was in the summer of 2014, they are pumping every day of the year water into Gaza. And on top of even that, they provide an ever greater amount of water to the Kingdom of Jordan and have been doing so for more than 20 years and an ever greater amount now to help make up for the deficits 
caused by the enormous flow of Syrian civil war refugees. And I said to myself two things at once. First, I said to myself, how come this is a story that the Persian community isn't telling? And the second thing I said to myself is, if the world is really going to be going into a water crisis, we need models to quickly figure out what we can do. Because you can't snap, it's not a Harry Potter thing, you know, where you wave a wand and suddenly everything is fixed. It takes a long time to build out a water system. And I thought to myself, I need, and we need, to think about this. Well, at that point it wasn't going to be a book, but at that point, but that, the idea led to me going to Israel, interviewing people, starting to write op-eds, starting to talk to our Senate friends uh, uh, here and there, and our congressman friends, none of whom, none of whom knew there was a water problem coming, including a senator friend of mine who sits on the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee. He had never seen this report. He didn't even know what I was talking about. And I said to myself, geez, you know, I was a successful businessman. I was able to persuade people of things. You know, maybe we could do something in this regard, too. And then I end up writing the book, and then, 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 then the Cinderella story begins. So well, and, it hasn't struck 12 yet. And on that, so this is now New York Times bestseller, L.A. Times bestseller. Have you been surprised by, by this, this reception to this book? <laughs> surprised. Okay. So, <laughs> so surprised. Surprise doesn't begin to explain <laughs> this. <laughs> you know, I'm not a book writer. I wrote the book, but I'm not a book writer. I'm late in life. You know, I've had, as I mentioned before, I've had a bunch of careers, but late in life, I adopt this new idea I'm going to write a book. And if I can share kind of a, a, kind of a funny family story, I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which politically, ideologically, is probably just like where we're sitting right now. And, and I, I come back from a, a trip to Israel, or interview people, and I say to my wife, I think I've decided I'm going to write a book about water in Israel. And we're empty nesters now, it's just the two of us. And, it's still a great marriage, at least from my side. So, 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 so she says to me, you can write a book? I said, yeah. She says, well, do me a favor. I said, what's that? She says, don't tell anybody. <laughs> so I said, why not? She said, we live on the Upper West Side, I said. She said, do we know even one person on the Upper West Side who doesn't say they're writing a book? She said, everyone's writing a book. She says, just don't talk about it. She said, and then she said, and if you do write the book, and if you do write the book, she said, what's the chance you're going to find a publisher? And she said, and if you find a publisher, what's the chance it's going to be a real publisher? And if you find a real publisher, what's the chance the book's going to sell more than 1,000 copies? And we're going to end up buying six or 700 of them. <laughs> and I said, can you pass the salad dressing? So, so, so this was actually in my mind. And then when I wrote, I wrote two-thirds of the book, I send it out, and Macmillan buys the book. So I'm all excited. All of a sudden, I'm thinking, here I come. You know, it's great. I go to the meeting, and the, and the editor who bought the book says to me, I just want to not raise your expectations too far. She says, you know, we have a business model, and we make money on a certain number of books sold. I said, well, how many is that? She says, if you sell 1,500 books, we're happy. And she said, and if you sell 1,500 books, she said, we'll print a few thousand more. She says, and that's it. Then we want you to write another book, and we want to see that too. Yeah. I have five copies myself. Yeah, so. well, just, just so you should know, we sold more than that number of copies in the first two days the book was out. She told me that there'd be perhaps a thousand books sold to independent bookstores before the book came out by pre-orders. There were 35,000 books pre-ordered. And, uh, I mean, it's just... <laughs> and, and, and as Aaron indicated, this book is now becoming, a I, I've now, you mentioned I've spoken more than 200 audiences. I've spoken more than 30 college campuses. This is a, and I hope we'll talk about that a little bit today. Yep. This is a completely new way of talking about Israel and a new way of talking about the environment. It's not just climate change. It's an actionable thing that you can do that you can't get into an argument about. It's water. It's the front edge of climate change, but you can solve this problem. And in terms of Israel, it, I'm not one to ignore the conflict, but you don't have to talk about the conflict. It's a great story for everyone, Jew, non-Jew, Muslim, to hear. And when I'm speaking around the country, I mean, I, I love being in a congregation of people just like me, but I also speak all the time to people who are not at all like me, or you. And they're fascinated to hear what Israel can do to solve their problems. So it's, it's great. Yeah. Well, and, and again, you know, this is a, an incredibly well-researched well -researched book full of facts. But as part of, part of your process, you, injured, you interviewed over 200 people. I'm curious if there's any, uh, any particular interviews uh, of note that you can share with us here. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to share one, but it's going to sound like I'm mocking her. 
So, and I don't mean for it to be this way. It was just, it was, it's, it's so a, hard It's to a safe hold. space here. We can talk it's about it. It's a safe it. space? Okay. So, so Levi Eshkol was the third prime minister of Israel, but his great, real great, con and he was the prime minister during the Six-Day War, but his, before the state, his really great contribution was that he was sort of the political muscle behind the idea of building out the national water system. There was a, a man who I hope, well, if time permits, we'll talk about, a man who's lost to history, but he's a hero in this book, and he deserves to be completely revived. I tracked down, well, I tracked down his son in, the, in, the, in this book, who's now an 88-year-old man, and got a chance to interview him. And it was very moving to, after you know, going through archives and reading this guy's life story, his name is Simcha Blas, reading his life story, hearing all about him, a man even Israelis have never heard of in this generation. And to track him down and then to hear all the details about his life was very exciting. But the most incredibly phenomenal uh, interview I had was with Levi Eshkol's widow, Miriam. And she, uh, she was elderly by the time I got around to writing this book, quite elderly. And I called her up on her phone in Jerusalem and I said, uh, Mrs. Eshkol, uh, I'm here uh, per our discussion. Uh, I just want to confirm I'm coming to your apartment Thursday morning. And she said, hmm, Thursday morning, she said, can you come today instead? So I said, sure, but why? I'm in Tel Aviv. It's a bit of an inconvenience, but why? She says, I think I'm going to be dead by Thursday. <laughs> so, so there was a sense of urgency in that. Sure. And, that and, and that actually, in a crazy way, overlaid the entire historical part of the book. Because I realized that I had somewhat sacred work to do. Because the generation that was the great generation that initiated this was dying off by the day. And I, that's why I said I didn't want to sound like I was mocking her, because she was very generous in a lot of ways. But the, the men and women who made this all happen are now quite elderly. And it gave me the challenge of going out and finding them, talking to them, hearing their stories, whether it's internationally in Iran or Africa, building out their water systems or what they did to build Israel's water system. Right. Yeah, and I think, and, and sort of on that point, and the video alluded to it, but there's a different cultural approach to water in Israel than, say, here. I mean, we know we hear all about water. We hear about the drought. We have the emergency order from the governor. But it doesn't seem to have the same, same importance. And, and actually, I wanted to talk. There's, there was a New York Times um, uh, article this week where they referenced a Yale study talking about climate change. Basically, what it boils down to is that the vast majority of Americans think that climate change is a big issue, but almost none of them think that it's going to personally affect them. That doesn't seem to be the case in Israel. So I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about the cultural differences and if that has an impact on why Israel has become such a water superpower. Yeah, I, I, can, I can just ask a, a question, which I'm sure it will be as many hands up as, as I imagine it will be. How many of you have been to Israel? Can I see a show of hands? Yeah. How many have been to Israel more than once? Okay. So, so I'm going to say a bunch of things that will ring very true. I mean, some of you could answer the question probably better than I can even. First of all is, even though Israel changed a bit in the 80s and 90s when they went through privatization, the Thatcherite, you know, Margaret Thatcherite, um, selling off of government enterprises and so forth, Israel is still to this day a very much of what I will call, I think it's a word, but if it's not, you'll understand what I mean, a very much of a communitarian society that the individual matters very much, but the community matters a great deal as well. And when you have a communitarian approach to the world, you are prepared to sacrifice for your children, for your neighbors, and for total strangers, because you value them in the way you also value yourself. And that idea of this sort of this more recent Western idea of have it, you know, Burger King tapped into something with this, you know, many years ago, have it your way, you know, but it, it became, to some extent, a sickness of it. All, it's all about me. It's about me. It's about my self-actualization. It's about my happiness. And I want, actually, I shouldn't value judge by saying it's sickness. It's, it's a reality, and it is what it is. But in Israel, of course, you have some of that, too. But you have a different mindset of everybody accepting the fact that they have to sacrifice to some degree for the benefit of the larger whole. And, and so that starts with that mindset. The second mindset is very much... And, and therefore, when you have that mindset, unlike with the climate change thing, which is, hey, climate change is not going to really affect me in my lifetime, unless I live, you know, to be Methuselah's age. You know, it's just not going to happen. So 
let the party go on, baby. You know, <laughs> rev that Hummer. You know, what do I care? I don't, not really. I live in Manhattan. For me, a car is taxi, you know. But, uh, but, but you know what I'm talking about. And, and so, and so for, for, my gen for those of us in this generation, climate change is something so remote. And if you live in a society, though, where you're thinking about not just today, but tomorrow and the impact of, of your society tomorrow, it, it has a very different approach to the way you think about planning. So Israel, I, I, I did a bit of research on this. It's quite remarkable. Israel is the most far out in time advanced planned water society in the world. They are, at some, in some elements, more than 50 years out in their thinking. And some of the, I've, I've seen the water plan. The water plan is remarkable in one regard in that they talk about things that they say, we have this problem, or in 23 years we'll have this problem. We don't have a solution for it yet, or we need some technological in, in, invention, but we are confident that the invention will be made between now and then. We'll give them sense. The other thing about Israel, aside from this community piece, is that Israelis are very comfortable taking responsibility. And part of that is, in Israel, they pay the full price for their water. And how many of you get a water bill? But do any of you have any sense, really, what that water covers? Anybody? I mean, you may know. I don't want to embarrass you and challenge you, because I've done this so many different times. But unless you work for the water utility, I will and you may, which happened to me a few months ago in a place, so I said, how do you know all this? I work for the water utility. So I said, you're out of here right now. So, but, but the reality is, is that none of us know really what our water bill goes for or how it goes. In Israel, there's a very direct cause and effect. And when you pay for something, um, it, you, know, you, you think about it in a different way. So all these cultural dimensions. And the final piece, and I start my book with this. How many of you can finish this phrase for me? Rain, rain, go away, come again. Exactly. Everyone knows that nursery rhyme. In Israel, they, they, and I start my book with this, with comparing the two nursery rhymes. Um, in Israel, uh, and I won't say in Hebrew, but in Israel, the, the nursery rhyme is uh, basically, it's raining outside, drip, drop, drip, drop. It's raining today. Clap your hands, clap your hands. It's raining today. You know, and, and so it's a mindset also that, 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 that water is something, to, rain is something to be treasured. All of these things create sort of a cultural phenomenon. And then the final piece I'll say about this is that everyone has heard of Israel as, as a startup nation. And, excuse me, and this is something that's also quite remarkable is that most, and if you do work for water utility, I don't mean to insult you by saying this, but most water utilities around the world have the mindset of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Most farmers around the world have the mindset of, this is what my father did, this is what my grandfather did. I'm not changing. It worked for them. It's going to work for me. Israel, because it is driven by the Zionist revolution, which was a revolution of science as much as politics and sociology, because of that, they challenge everything. And I make this point in my book, which is it's the only country in the world where utilities are fined by the Central Water Authority if they don't innovate. And they are given incentives if they innovate with a, a startup company, and that startup idea ends up being a success, and then that idea migrates around the entire country. So it's an entire ecosystem. It's not one thing. It's these many different elements that bring Israeli society together that helps them to succeed in, I would argue, in a couple of areas. If I, if, I know it's been a long answer. I want to give just one other part to the answer. I think there's another piece, which is that Societies tend to succeed at what they deem to be important to the society. Whether it's the Democrats, the Republicans, whether it's the right wing or the left wing in power, if you have certain central beliefs that are at the core of your, call it your national consciousness, not always, but usually you succeed at it. And I make the argument, I don't make it in the book, but it occurred to me after I finished the book, that Israel made three important existential choices in the 1930s. The first is one that everybody here knows, without, just without almost a moment of thought, which is that, if, that Israel wants to be able to defend itself by itself. And as a result of that decision, made in the 1930s, today Israel, a country of only about 8 million people, has, some people say, the fourth, or at worst, the fifth or sixth most powerful military, not per capita, but in absolute terms, in the world. The second great existential choice they make in the 1930s just around the time of the rise of, of the Nazis, is 
that they are not going to have a traditional immigration system of orderly visa systems of 12,000 this year or 48,000 this year or 130,000 next year. Any Jew who wants to come in is welcome to come in in any torrent that they can have them come in. As a result of that, with some bumps in the road, Israel builds out what is without any question the world's greatest immigration absorption system. And that's something I will argue in the coming years the world will be looking to Israel for learnings about. But the third great innovation and the third great existential choice that Israel made in the 1930s is that they are not going to be like their neighbors and other countries in the world and they are not going to allow themselves to have water as a gating issue, as a blockage to the growth of their society, to their ability to absorb immigrants, or to their economic vitality. And because of that choice, they went ahead on a glide path to where they are today. And on that, on that point, I think, you know, it, with the establishment of this, this advanced water infrastructure and being able to take care of themselves, there's, a, there's a, a term you coined in your book, hydro-diplomacy, wherein, wherein Israel can use that expertise and, and go around the world, including to her neighbors. So I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about what it means to be exporting water to her neighbors and what kind of relationships that can form. Yeah, and again, this goes back to the core of Zionist ideology. Thank you for, for, for mentioning that. The book is sort of divided, for, I, I, although I assume everybody will buy nine copies of the book, or five as you bought. You know, uh, I, I, don't, I don't assume everybody will read all the copies they have bought. Uh, so, so let me just sort of scope out what the book looks like. It's not a technical journal in any way. It's not for engineers, well, engineers can read it with joy. It, it is, it's, it's divided into three parts. The first part is history, society, culture. What is it about Israel they were able to do this? The second third of the book, in very liberal arts, which is what I am, uh, major kind of way, is what are the technologies that drove this process? And the final part is the one that Aaron just referenced, is hydro diplomacy. And it turns out that here also, from earliest, earliest Zionist thought, water was central to the thinking. Probably all of you have heard the name Theodore Herzl. He's the prophet, the genius, who came up with the idea, basically, of political Zionism. And Herzl writes a book. He was an essayist and a playwright and, an, and a journalist and a political activist later in life. Herzl writes a book called Alt Neuland, which means old modern land. And it was written in the style of a book that a lot of us read in high school called uh, Looking Backward by Bellamy. Remember that in high school, that book we had to read some of us? Which is sort of like, what the world's going to look like 50 years from now from the vantage point of there, looking backward. And Herzl writes Alt Neuland, which if you haven't read, is actually worth reading. It reads fairly well. I read it for this book, for my book. And um, he talks about Israel in 50 years forward, where there's now a Jewish state. He says, he has one of the characters, his protagonists say in the book, that the heroes of the Jewish state are its water engineers, which says that at its base, at its core, they're already thinking about that. Herzl elsewhere writes, that as soon as the Jews have established it, not in Old Ireland, elsewhere he says, as soon as the Jews have established their state, the very next thing that they must do is to extend the blessings and learnings of their state, including and especially their water technologies, to the benighted peoples of Africa. And this is baked into the early Zionist thought. And by the way, those of you who, who don't remember this, Yitzhak Rabin's Nobel Prize lecture, which he gave about a year before he was assassinated, uh, begins, I'm paraphrasing, not quoting directly, begins with approximately the following words. I did not intend, when I was a boy, to become a soldier. My plan, my life plan, was to become a water engineer. So the greatest people in the country are thinking about water all the time. So, so hydro diplomacy, where's the story there? The story is that Israel, as we all know, has been diplomatically isolated from most of its existence. Israel makes the decision early on in the frankly, in the 1940s, and certainly full bore by the early 1950s, to use what's their emerging water excellence as a tool to knock on doors of countries that are likely to be hostile to them, or at best neutral to them, and find a way in via water. And I can give a couple of profound examples. First example is Iran. Everybody knows that today Iran hates Israel, but Israel in, 19, uh, in 1962, Iran suffered a catastrophic earthquake, which destroyed the equivalent of, you know, the Central Valley of California, the equivalent of their Central Valley, a place called Kazvin. It destroyed their irrigation system, an ancient system. And the Shah reaches out to the United Nations, knowing in 1962 already that Israel's water sophistication 
And he says to them, is there a possibility you could reach out to Israel and ask them to send, as he put it, one or two or at most three hydrologists to come and help us think through what we're going to do now? And those, actually three, one of them I interviewed, uh, the other two passed away, um, uh, show up in a matter of 48 hours. But a few years later, there are so many hundreds of hydrologists, geologists, mathematicians, statisticians, and other surveyors from Israel working in the Iranian water sector, so many hundreds that there are Hebrew language schools for the children of these people in Iran. Shopkeepers learned Hebrew so that they could talk to the wives of these many water professionals. And this became, the, and I interviewed a man well into his 90s now, the Israeli ambassador to Iran, who told me that water was the wedge that got Israel in to talk about other issues like defense and agriculture and other things like that, which is incredible. Another story is amazing is China. China makes a decision early on that they'll have nothing to do with Israel, but only for realpolitik reasons. And the reason is that they want to be recognized at the United Nations. They want to be on the Security Council. And even after that, they want to be able to have um, a good majority on any initiative that they have. And they go, where is the largest pocket of votes? It's the Islamic Conference. Some 60 countries are members of the Islamic Conference. The Chinese go to the, go to the Islamic Conference. This is all, by the way, the Iran story and the China story I'm telling now have never been in print in any language before. These are things I found in archives and such, and I found the people involved with it and was able to tell these stories. The Chinese go to the uh, Islamic Conference, and the Islamic Conference says, we will give you our votes as a block in the UN, but only if you commit that you will have no dealings of any kind with Israel, a complete boycott. And the Chinese agree. However, their water problems, which today are still quite severe, their water problems grow so horrible in the late 70s that they, in secret, reach out to Israel and ask them to send teams of hydrologists into China with fake passports, from, traveling from other countries first, to come into China and to diagnose the problems. Well, this became such a great relationship that finally the Chinese decide that they want to go public with the water relationship. They want to have more water interactions with Israel. And they invite the first official Israeli in China. Publicly recognized is uh, a man from uh, a great agricultural institution in Israel called the Volcani Institute, who was brought into China to train Isra uh, Chinese academics and Chinese farmers in the best deployment of their water. That leads directly, within a year, to diplomatic relations. And even today, today, right now, I mean, that's all historical stuff. Today, Israel has right now a remarkable, very quiet relationship. There are 150 countries around the world, Aaron, 150 countries around the world that use Israeli water technology. And why is that number 150 such a crazy number? Because there aren't 150 countries around the world that Israel has diplomatic or commercial relations with on a formal basis which means that on a very regular basis, if not daily, then certainly weekly or monthly, Israelis are going into these countries the way they went into China in the 70s and 80s and are dealing with sometimes just water issues and sometimes quietly with very senior government officials. It's a backdoor way, which makes me, on the one hand, you can be frustrated. Why are they so hypocritical? Why do they condemn Israel at the UN? At the same time, welcome these Israelis you know, coming in with Israeli passports on the private lounge. But on the other hand, you could say Israel is doing some great things for the world and at the same time opening doors or opening hearts or opening eyes and maybe it'll bear fruit. That's amazing. And, and actually on the Chinese piece, I will say when I studied in Israel, we had an incredible amount of Chinese students actually coming and studying with us at Tel Aviv University. And one, one interesting thing actually maybe not a lot of people know is that when Chinese students come to Israel, they obviously come to study, but they give themselves not only English names, but Israeli names as well. So when I walked into my dorm room to get my master's, I was getting my master's at Tel Aviv University, I walked in, this guy comes up, and uh, I say, hi, I'm Aaron. And I can tell right away he doesn't speak very great English. I said, what's your name? He goes, Chaim. Huh. <laughs> I said, oh, Chaim, are you Jewish? He said, no. I said, okay, well, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here to study Kabbalah. I thought, okay, this is getting even more interesting. And then I said, uh, so what, do you go by another name? He said, yeah, Hank. I said, okay. I'm, keep on guessing, I'll finally get to it. So his name is Ho Ho Wang from Nanjing. Um, but I think it's a testament to the fact that the water can be a bridge in really opening up these, 
these types of relationships. You, you know, I, if, I, if I may, you just said Nanjing, and it sparked something in my mind. I received an email last Thursday from a man with perfect English. It was just remarkable. A professor named Zhu Jin at Nanjing University who told me that he is the president of the Israel Studies Association of China, which has eight university members. There are over 500 students studying this topic area. And I know that the Technion also has a large exchange program with China, and there are many Chinese students studying at the Technion. And this professor, Zhu Jin, wrote me and said that he has read my book in English and was wondering, is the book coming out in Chinese? And I said, yeah, and I wrote him back instantly, and uh, I was a bit insomniac, and so our time zones actually aligned. <laughs> so I wrote him back instantly. I said, yes, it's coming out in June in Chinese. It's already out in Taiwan, but it's a different Chinese dialect. And I said, it's coming out in June. And he wrote me back, and he said, I would like, if you could arrange someone to help us with this, I would like to get a copy of this book to each of the five or 600 students studying in China who are Israel <coughs> Studies majors. And I thought to myself, this is absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, and the book's out in lots of countries. It's coming out in others. I mean, this is mind-blowing that this is a way that these students who have never left China necessarily will have a completely new way of thinking about Israel as not a problem, not thinking about the conflict, not thinking about the Palestinians, not the way, you know, this sort of this, this, this knee-jerk reaction, not that I myself ignore the political dimension, but every time you talk to somebody about Israel, it's like, yeah, about what about the Palestinians? So, you know, so it's like, and I don't think you should ignore that, but I don't think you should only talk about that. And this is so exciting for me that these people are going to, well, sure, sooner or later learn about the political conflict, but have a nuanced, multidimensional view of Israel as Israel's problem solver, Israel as solution, Israel as answer, Israel as salvation. I mean, how wonderful is that? Yeah, that's amazing. And then, because we're talking about Technion and other universities, let's talk about universities. So you've spoken at a lot of universities, and for a lot of the people in this room, um, universities can be a very tough place when it comes to talking about Israel. And you've spent time on universities talking about this issue. And we've seen things even here in San Francisco. You know, we had the, uh, the mayor of Jerusalem came, and he was blocked from speaking at a, at a local college here. So what, is, what has your experience been? On, on campuses and specifically talking about this issue. <laughs> there's, a, there's a Nathan England. Anyone here know the short story writer Nathan Englander by any chance? A few of you do? He's just a wonderful writer. And so maybe you remember the short story. It, the story takes place in the last days of Stalin's regime. And Stalin, in his crazy, anti-Semitic, paranoid phase, rounds up uh, all these Jewish intellectuals and these Jewish writers to have them you know, show trials and have them executed. And there's this one sort of mediocre Jewish writer who's been rounded up and put in this holding pen to be executed in the morning. And he's breathlessly excited that, yes, he's being executed in the morning, but that somebody would think that he is worthy of being in the same group as all these great writers, you know? So I have the opposite phenomenon. I have been at more than 30 universities now. I have not gotten any problems at all. Why hasn't anyone thrown anything at me? Why not me? No, I'm kidding now. But let me, <laughs> let, me be, let me be serious. I have now been at more than 30 universities. There have been a grand total of two hostile questions asked. One at Tulane Law School. Uh-oh, what did wrong? What? You're, you're not in trouble. You're fine. Okay. I thought I said something wrong. One at Tulane Law School. The other one at MIT School of Civil Engineering. Non-students at MIT, it was a man in his 70s, at Tulane was a woman in her late 50s, early 60s. They stood up, it was about two, three weeks apart. They asked the identical question word for word. <laughs> and it was a long sheet of paper, it was a long multi-paragraph question. And clearly it was given to them, they got off the internet or something like that. They were not students. And the audiences in both places were extremely agitated and annoyed by them. That has been the grand total of my hostile moments on campus. And I want to tell you my first place that I spoke. I spoke uh, at um, University of California, San Diego School of Business, the Rady School of Business. Mm -hmm. The book was only out a few weeks at that time. And I, um, I'm speaking at the school. Uh, um, I get introduced by the dean. Uh, There's about 110, 120 students there. And just 
looking at their faces. They're from China and Japan. I later learned there's a group from, from Korea and Singapore and many from Africa and quite a number from South America. And I don't see a Jewish face in the whole crowd. And later I conclude there probably was no Jews in the, in the whole school. It's the School of Business, Graduate School of Business. And I give my talk, which was then sort of, I'm still finding my way and what I wanted to talk about. And I finish, and the hands go up. And I'm, of course, I'm tensed. I'm, I'm waiting for the question. And the first question is from a, a man from Singapore asking me a question about water. And the second question is from somebody from China about what we can learn from you. And there was a man from, from Ghana who starts talking about what are problems and what solutions we can have. And this goes on. And finally, we're out of time. But there's still at least 15 or 20 hands up. So the dean comes over, uh, the dean of the business school comes over and says, to, are you in a hurry? Can you give us another hour? And I stayed for an hour. Not a single question about politics. And the answer here, I'm telling you, there's a new way of talking about Israel. And yes, my book is a bit of a guidebook in this, but that is, if you talk about Israel as a solution to problems, if you tell people how I can help you, not in a haughty way, but in a spirit of partnership, people want to hear. People want to learn those lessons. People want to take those lessons back and internalize them into their lives. And I think that that is, that is a great and exciting takeaway that maybe we have been crazy for the last 30 years, playing into the hands of our enemies, giving oxygen to our antagonists. And maybe our Jewish newspapers should not go so insane writing about all the time about BDS this, BDS that, and maybe we're giving oxygen to the whole story. You know, I for one, by the way, do not think America is an anti-Semitic country. If those of you are on Twitter, I tweet all the time, um, at Seth M. Siegel, if you're on Twitter, I'd love to have a relationship with you. I tweet about Israel and about water all the time. And I tweeted out this morning when the, when the uh, probably mentally disturbed Israeli was arrested. Uh, I wrote, um, you know, good that the creep was arrested. And finally, we can put to rest the na notion that America is an anti-Semitic country. And, and, and so we can also put to rest, I think, the notion that campuses are hotbeds of anti-Semitic or anti-Israel feeling. There are, surely there are mostly Arab students, there are a couple of maybe Islamic students, and maybe some nutters that are out there, and, and uh, maybe some socialist workers', workers party kind of nut jobs, you know, from, might even be Jewish. But in the main, overwhelmingly, that's not who's there. And so I, I want to share, I mean, if there's happy good news out of tonight, there's a lot of, I, I think, well, there's a lot of good news out of tonight, but, but I, I think one of the pieces of good news is that campuses are not just, not only not occupied territory that we can't win back, we never lost them. We never lost them. The pie chart is that the antagonists are a tiny little slice. And then our pro-Israel students are Jewish and non-Jewish are another tiny little slice. And everybody is up for, is everybody up, else there is up for grabs. We just have to figure out the way to talk to them. And I think this is one of them. Yeah. Well, look, and I think um, there's an incredible amount that Israel, as you mentioned, is doing with countries around the world. Here with California, we're working on legislation to bridge. We're actually working on legislation to create funds to have U.S. And Israel. who is the person leading that initiative, Aaron Tartakovsky? There's a lot of us working on it. Yes, I know, but it's a young man named Aaron. <laughs> um, but, you know, in spite of a lot of the bad... Oh, I embarrassed him, I'm sorry. He's blushing up here. Okay, I'm sorry. It's the lights. Um, <laughs> In light of, you know, we mentioned Syria, we mentioned a lot of these conflicts in which water can really, can really exacerbate in an already bad situation. But um, I want to open it up to questions, so I just want to end with, what are you most hopeful about? I think we are, we are ultimately a very hopeful people. That's the, the name of uh, the Israeli national anthem, Hatikva. So looking at, at, at what Israel can offer the world, what are you most hopeful about? Well, look... Um I think I'm hopeful for a couple of reasons. First is, you know, maybe a lot of you are like me, just you're interested readers and you've read a lot of books about the environment or population or other global environmental trends. And my experience when I read those books generally is I think I want to commit suicide because it's either that or I'm going to be eating my neighbor's children a couple of weeks from now. You know, it's like the world is, is going in a vortex and it's going in a very bad direction very quickly. You know, so, so. I, by the way, in case you haven't figured out after a half hour into this talk, I speak with hyperbole sometimes, but the book, not. Uh, so, so, uh, so, but the truth of the matter is, is that the hopeful thing is that I think we are facing a very severe water problem. It is getting worse by the week. Just last week, the UN issued a report, a cry really, that says that the, that 
that 20 million people, that's a large number of people, 20 million people in five countries are at risk of dying from lack of water in the next year. And I think that number is going to grow to be tens of millions and hundreds of millions if we don't get smart about this. But what's hopeful about this is that it's not like some of these other things where, you know, it's like there's a thought that maybe we could set up a vapor cloud to cool global warming or stuff like that where it's totally theoretical and Caltech has to figure it out or Stanford engineers have to figure it out. You know, this is a model that absolutely works. And whether you're a large country or a small country, a landlocked country or a seafaring country, whatever you are, there are lessons they say in the book that can infuse what you do. And if I want to say one last word, we live, uh, perhaps some of you are as depressed about politics in America, forget about Israel for a second, as I am. And uh, it's been a very dispiriting period the last you know, year or so, I think, not just the last two months. And somebody said to me, I had, didn't have this thought myself, somebody said to me that, that he read my book uh, and it, not, as not being about water. He said that water was the medium for me to talk about it, but really what it was about was about vision and leadership and courage of the political class to make things happen. And I actually think on a reread of my book that I may have, because I'm a political person, I may have inadvertently written that book. And I think that that's the best news out of this, which is that, yes, it seems to me and to many other people sort of a dark moment we're in, but we can, by citizen engagement and citizen activism, we can really change the world. Well, thank you for your vision, your leadership, and and uh, your vision, your leadership, and, and your courage, especially since you apparently had to go against your wife's wishes to even write this book. No, so no, that no, takes no. Uh, incredible she, courage. She was very encouraging. She just, can you hear me in the back? I'm sorry, can you hear me? Can you hear my friend in the back? She was very encouraging. She just, she's actually very encouraging for my whole career. It's wonderful. Every time I change, if this time I'm starting to get the things going on in business and I want to change, she blesses it. She just didn't want me to tell anybody. And that was a Tuesday or Wednesday night. And that Friday night at Shabbat dinner, I told a whole large table of our friends that I was writing a book. <laughs> and she, and she, the dedication is to her. So uh, thank you, Seth, for being here with us. Okay, we're now going to take questions from the audience. I'm going to ask the first question, then I'm going to turn it over to my friend and co-Israel Action person, David Blumberg, who's going to walk around. Please raise your hand if you have a question. Please make the questions short and concise and not a speech. So my question is, can you talk about Israel and Jordan and how Israel is exporting water to Jordan to strengthen the relationship? Sure. I, oh, you want to take that back? So I guess I'll do this then. Uh, Hi. Oh, boy. Is this working? Yeah, it's working. Great. Okay. So. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a wonder, the Jordan story is a wonderful story, and I talk about this in the section of the book that Aaron uh, pointed out. It's called the Hydro Diplomacy, uh, because, again, I don't shirk the story about the Palestinians. I talk about uh, Palestinian culture and society in the book, and the fact that Israel is the greatest insurance policy the Palestinians have ever had, at least vis-a-vis -vis water. And again, I say in the book, not everything about the relationship is great, but in water, it's fantastic. And so if you're a Palestinian, you have the best water profile of any Arab in the Middle East, unless you live in Saudi Arabia next to a desalination plant. And that is something that's great. But for the Jordanians, um, uh, I tell about the story. One of the heroes of my book is a man named Uri Shani, who um, a former water commissioner of Israel, a professor, a former commando. He served in the same unit as uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, many years ago when he was a young man. Um, this, this fellow, Uri Shani, brilliant fellow, uh, uh, came up with this incredible idea. Everybody can visualize the map of Israel. It's a long, skinny country, and there's a freshwater lake, sort of the top third, the Sea of Galilee, the Canaret, and then the, the Jordan River runs from the bottom, of, uh, the bottom of the Sea of Galilee down into the Dead Sea. Well, the Dead Sea for the past hundred years has been shrinking for all kinds of reasons I don't want to go into and make the answer longer than it needs to be. It's been shrinking, and Uri Shani came up with a a three-cushion a three bank shot idea, which is that in partnership with the Kingdom of Jordan, that Israel would build a desalination system that would extract water from the Red Sea on the bottom tip near Eilat and Aqaba. A pipeline would run from Eilat to the Dead Sea, and some of you may remember that the Dead Sea is the lowest point on Earth in terms of uh, altitude. And I'll just use my arm as the example. My elbow is Eilat, 
and my fingers is the Dead Sea. So if I, you pump it out, and as soon as it's pumped out, you don't have to use one more uh, watt of energy because gravity can drive the water all the way to the Dead Sea. At the Dead Sea, again on the Jordanian side, the water is desalinated. The fresh water is then shipped via a spur into Israel. Israel excels at desert farming. You may know making the desert bloom was not just a boast, it's a reality. And that Israel will build five or eight new desert farms with the desalinated water they get. And the brine, the salty stuff that's left over, which normally is deposited back into the ocean, will be deposited into the Dead Sea to stabilize it so that it doesn't continue to shrink. It's a really brilliant idea from an environmental point of view. But as I mentioned before, it's a, it's a three-cushion bank shot. Because not only does it have an environmental component, it also has a jobs component. Jordan suffers from a high degree of unemployment, and this project will take lots and lots of laborers to build. And Jordan will be able to earn billions of dollars from the construction of this system. But there's a third part to this that is the genius of it. And that is that in exchange for the water that Israel gets from this Dead Sea, Red Sea, Dead Sea pipeline, Israel will build from one of its desalination plants on the Mediterranean coast a conveyance line into Amman, Jordan, the capital city of Jordan, Kingdom of Jordan. And it will give, for every gallon of water that Israel gets, Israel will give a little bit more than the amount they've gotten into the pipeline into Jordan. And because the Palestinians can play the part of the spoiler in this as part of this deal, Israel is also building a pipeline into Hebron for use by the Palestinian Authority to bolster the economy of Hebron as well. And why is this a genius geopolitical move? He said to me when I interviewed him, and one of the times I interviewed him, he said to me, my fear is, this is when Al-Qaeda was, before ISIS was the worst bad guy on the block, he said, my fear is that Al-Qaeda is going to succeed. He said, and if they succeed, the next country they're going to go for is the Kingdom of Jordan. He said, if, if the Kingdom of Jordan falls, I don't want them to be able to cut all ties to Israel. I want them to be dependent on us for something. And if one-third to one-half of your capital city's water is coming from your sworn enemy, that sworn enemy can't be such a sworn enemy, he believes. And so, and he says, and if they should cut off the water, if they should cut off relations, we have some leverage over them as well. So this is a remarkable tool of both diplomacy and statecraft. It, it engenders wonderful good relations, working relations between Jordan and Israel today, and it creates a way to weave their two economies and their two long-term goals together, which is, which is how France and Germany overcame centuries of enmity and today are more or less partners because of economics. First question while I'm walking. Speak into the microphone. I'll start with you uh, first. But my first question is, let's dive a little bit more into that Palestinian question because oh, you can't hear. Can you hear now? You want me to repeat your question? Okay. How's that? Can you hear? Yes. Okay. Let's dive a little bit back into the Palestinian issue because a few years ago, I don't know if you were at a lot of these meetings, but I go to a lot of Israel-Palestinian stuff, and there was a meme. I don't know who started it, but the meme was. Israel's planning to steal the Palestinian water. And they talk particularly about the aquifers in the highlands of Judea and Samaria, et cetera, et cetera. Can you just like dive a little bit and deconstruct it so that we have the answer to break that myth? Yeah, uh, myth is kind, actually. Lie would be the better way of describing that. By the way, it's a, it's a pleasure to meet you. I've, I've, I've known of you for a while, and it's a pleasure. I, hopefully later I'll be able to shake your hand as well, but it's a pleasure to, to get to know you, uh, to see you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to see you. Um, probably true of lots of others in this room. Is John Rothman here by any chance? Is John Rothman here? He was my madrich when I was like a college kid. Does he, is he, I know he's a he's, member of the congregation he's, he's here. here. John Rothman. He's here in spirit. John. Would someone say that I said, hi, John Rothman? <laughs> Does he still have that big beard? Oh, he got rid of the beard? Damn. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll call in. So, um, it, it, yeah, David, it is, a, it is a complete and total fabrication. And on so many levels. I have a whole chapter in my book basically debunking this. But I want to say very clearly, I did not set out to debunk it. I, myself, when I started working on the book, 
had internalized this lie. And I was not sure how I wanted to address it, but I knew I'd have to address it. And I, because I'm an, I'm an honest guy, and this was not a book of propaganda intended as such, my intent was to address why it was that Israel stole Palestinian water. That was what, that was what my going in position was. Like, well, what's the Israeli explanation for why they steal Palestinian water? So I start doing the research, and it turns out Israel doesn't steal anything of Palestinian water. And I'll give just a couple of data points so you have the information. First of all, the relationship between the parties is governed by an agreement they entered into where the Palestinians had the U.S. government, the European Union, and the, and the uh, Russians sitting with them, helping them negotiate. And that was the Oslo II agreement in the, in the early 1990s, which lays out in, in detail, I mean, I can email it to anybody who's interested, I'll be glad to send it to you, which lays out in specific detail as to how many, how many gallons of water, cubic meters they're called, the Palestinians get out of that aquifer called the, called the mountain aquifer, as to how much water they get, and that in a bad year, when there's less water available, the Palestinians are guaranteed their amount of water, and prior to the Israelis having desalination and other technologies where they could manufacture water, when there was a shortfall, every year there was a shortfall, the Palestinians got their allocation, and the Israeli farmers got less. And every so often, Israel would say, you know, we didn't realize the extreme would last so long. We'll add some more so your economy has grown. You'll have some more water. We'll give you some more water. And then two years later, there was a drought in Israel. And even then, the Israelis allowed themselves to continue giving the Palestinians the newly promised amount. And it's been increased several times. So just starting with the fact that there's an agreement between the parties. But let me tell you another thing. In 1967, when the Israelis conquer the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, if you're offended by me calling it the West Bank, when Israel conquers the West Bank, 10%, actually 9% of the 600,000 Palestinian Arabs living there have running water in their homes. And they are only in four Palestinian towns, villages, or cities. Four. Today, 60-some-odd years later of Israeli evil occupation, and Israel, you didn't mention that Israel also is a genocidal force that kills Palestinians, right? So today, there are 2.4 million Palestinian Arabs living in the West Bank. Israel's very incompetent at this genocide game that they play, so uh, allowing a 400% increase in population. Today, 97% of the West Bank has running water, and the only ones who don't have running water are those Bedouins who you see when you're driving in the hills taking the shortcut through the West Bank. That's the only ones who don't have running water in their homes. And so the story is, just as Palestinian life expectancy has grown and infant mortality has fallen and literacy has risen as a result of the encounter with Israel, the Palestinian water story is so much better today than it has been at any other time. I want to say one last word to you about the aquifer. The other thing that Palestinians say, I interviewed, uh, Aaron mentioned I interviewed over 200 people. I interviewed 220 people for the book, 180 Israelis because it's basically Israel's story, but also 20 Palestinian officials and 20 American and NGO heads. Uh, American officials and NGO heads. But the 20 Palestinians, one of them became actually, he and I became quite friendly, uh, and we remain in contact to this day. And he said to me, you know, this thought that the Israelis, thanks to the Israelis, we have 97% of our households are covered now, he says, that's entirely racist. He says, because do you think that we wouldn't have been able to build it out just as well as the Israelis did for us? Of course we could have. Of course they couldn't have, because if they could have, then why wouldn't Jordan have done the same thing, or Syria have done the same thing, or Lebanon done the same thing? The only place in the Arab world where they have this phenomenon is in the West Bank. So I would answer to that as well, that the reason that today Israel restricts, and this is the other thing you hear about from the Israel antagonists, that Israel stops Palestinians from drilling wells in this aquifer. It's true. And the reason for it is if you drill a well incorrectly, you run the risk of toxins, of poisons, drifting into the aquifer, which is bad for the Israelis and bad for the Palestinians. Now, I'll say one final word about this. Gaza and the West Bank may be some loosely related politically, less and less so every month, but uh, hydrologically, there's no connection whatsoever. And what is going on in Gaza is a true and total catastrophe in the making. I have a phrase in my book, which water problems are a proxy or a substitute for bad governance. And I have to tell you something, when bad governance meets insane ideology, as the case with Hamas, the consequences are dire. The Palestinians in, the, in Gaza 
are no more than a year or two away from being out of fresh water supplies. Not because there isn't fresh water there, but because the Hamas people, since they have taken over Gaza, have so badly mismanaged their aquifer by allowing Palestinians to drill illegally into the aquifer, allowing the pollution of the aquifer to become so complete and so salinized from Mediterranean Sea water that the water will be unusable in somewhere between one year and three years from today. The only solution to their problem will be a lifeline from Israel if they will take it, or will they choose to have pictures of their people suffering at the hands of the big bad Israelis? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a phenomenon where only, you know, we Westerners assume governance, is, uh, the politicians will worry about themselves somewhat too, but they, we assume that they come to office to worry about us. It's only there that they come to office to worry about their own ideology and their own clans, and, and not about the people at large. Fabulous answer, thank you. All right, sir. Thank you. Can I ask everyone who's asking a question just to tell me your first name? I like to have a personal relationship. My name's Larry. Larry. Hi, Larry. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I hear you. Um, have, has the Israeli government given up on the idea of bringing salt water from the Mediterranean to the Dead Sea, then allowing more of the fresh water from the Jordan to, to be diverted into the Galilee? Yeah. They haven't completely given up on the idea. There's a new engineering report that uh, is in the works right now about it. The problem has been, I don't want to be too technical here, the problem has been that the, um, the area, that area has lots of seismic activity. You know, well, you're in San Francisco, you know about seismic activity, right? So the problem is about having a line that goes from the Mediterranean across Israel into the Dead Sea is that that would be salt water, seawater, that would cross the country. And if there's an earthquake of any significant size, that would crack and go, that seawater, the canal would crack, they fear, and it would fall into the aquifer where Israel gets most of its fresh water. And so that's the concern right now about that. And they're trying to figure out an engineering solution around that. If they can figure that out, then that's the greatest source of, of hydroelectric energy they're going to get. Because once again, although the Mediterranean is low, it's higher than the Dead Sea. So it would flow this way and you could have hydroelectric stations along the way. So it's somewhat, again, rehabilitating the, the Dead Sea, but most significantly, you'd have clean, uh, you know, renewable energy. So that's, that's the goal. Hi. Hi, Seth. My name's Jeff, and this question comes from my daughter, Julie, who's an environmental studies major in college. And is, she, is she here right no, now? No, she's not. No, but I, we both read your book. So wow. it was an opportunity for us to mention this to her. She couldn't be here, but... Would you tell Julie I send my regards? I will do that, but she sent a question. <laughs> You're recording it? Oh, yeah. hold on. So she sent a question, and it's not Hi, Julie. paragraph. <laughs> uh, given that the U.S. and every state within privatizes water, which gives the water rights to companies and individuals, how many years would a transition take for California water to be in the hands of government? Wait, wait, he, wait, you have to start again. I'm sorry. No, that's... This, okay. sounds, like a, this sounds like she's a very smart person who's writing a term paper, <laughs> and I'm... And she's like pulling an all-nighter, and I need to help her out here. Exactly. <laughs> Better you than me. Coffee is okay. Don't take any of those diet pills to stay up late at night. Okay, go ahead. So, so given that the U.S. and every state within privatizes water, which gives the water rights to companies and individuals, how many years would a transition take for California water to be in the hands of government? What are the greatest impediments for the state to transition to the successful method of water distribution and why, very similar to what Israel did in terms of nationalizing their water. Well, Julie, thank you for that wonderful question. Uh, and uh, I, if, I, if I want to give you my answer, I'm sorry that I'm going to actually disagree with the premise of your question. And um, I, before we end tonight, though, what I'd love to do is I'd love to give you my email address. Please share it with Julie and let Julie and I cut the folks out and she and I will have a direct relationship. Aaron can be part. I'll copy Aaron on everything. Um, but don't forget, my daughter first. Okay. So um, that video better not go to my daughter. She will never talk to me again. So here's my point of view, Julie. I actually disagree with the premise of your question. I know that lots of people think that privatized water is a bad idea. I don't. I think that it, I'm actually agnostic. I don't support it. I'm not antagonistic to it. I am, not, I, I am agnostic as to the idea of who should control our water. And the only thing I think is that government should set the rules of the road and make the decision as to what 
we expect to be delivered for us out of our water systems. And that once we have that with the government creating the boundaries, perhaps pricing boundaries, perhaps delivery, certainly quality standards and so forth, guarantees that in case the company starts to encounter financial difficulties that they'll be able to continue to provide high quality water and can't cut corners, those types of things. I'm actually completely fine with the idea of private companies providing the water. And I know that there is a movement afoot around the world, very big, I just spoke in Chile at, a, at, at the Congreso del Futuro there, and there was a very big mo motion there because the whole country's water is privatized and it's like, how do we, how do we get this back for us? I, I, I don't feel that way. I think that there are times when government can do things uniquely. There are times when private sector can do things uniquely. But the only thing here I think that government must 